All right, I just invite you now to open a Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. All right, Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Good morning, everybody. Everybody have a great 4th of July? Yeah? Welcome to Regen. It's great to see everybody. And we are about to start on a little series here at Regen in July, a topical series, I guess you might call it, about kind of why we do certain things here, what our liturgy is. And we're going to start with communion today, but we'll also be going through why we worship and why we give. And so that's just something to think about. And so we are doing things just a little differently this month, but I think it'll still be pretty cool and we can learn a lot about what Jesus says about these things in our liturgies. And I'm gonna get more into that word in a moment because I know it's scary for a lot of people in a church like ours, you know, and so we're gonna be dealing with some of those words today too. But let's pray first. Uh, Father God, we just thank you so much for this awesome opportunity to come together and worship you together here in your church, Lord. This is your house and we just invite the Holy Spirit to be present and to just open us up in ways that we didn't know we could be opened up to receive your word and your song and prayer, Lord. So we lift up this time to you, and we ask this in your name, and the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today's passage is about the institution of communion, essentially. And there's many passages in the New Testament that refer to communion. And so here at Regen, we call it communion. And I want to get to the liturgy part first though. So you know liturgy is something that a lot of times we think are more high church things and it's a little bit scary right because Catholics or Episcopalians or Anglicans or Presbyterians it's something they do. They kneel, they stand, we're not really familiar with it, it's kind of scary and it's somehow removed from our Christian experience. But liturgy is really just a word In the Greek, that means a formalized set of rituals that you go through a service, Christian rituals. In fact, we have quite a few of those here, you know, and it just doesn't seem like it's so formal, but it is. So when Jane comes up, there's a call to worship. She prays. She invites the Spirit in and God to be present with us. And then we sing songs. And then somebody comes up, like Steve, and does announcements, and he reads Scripture. Sometimes there's a special element in that. A missionary will come and speak. Or one of our brothers and sisters will give their testimony and how Jesus has worked in their life. And then central to our liturgy is the sermon. And that's in many Christian churches that we would be more affiliated with. That's what we recognize. And then there's communion, and that's a central part of our service also. We do that every week. And then we worship during communion. And then we have prayer. And then there's a benediction. And that's all liturgy means, right? So we actually do have a ritualized set of a form of worship here. And it's just sort of what we would call low church for us. You know, it's flexible. It's not multiple people coming up in different formal outfits. You know, we're pretty casual how we dress here. 
Often the person speaking is the worst dressed person in the church <laughs> in a place like ours. But it's not anything to really get too stressed about, but it's an important part of our church, this ritual and this liturgy. And for us, there are two sacraments, and sacraments, it's another scary word, right? A sacrament just means it's a religious ceremony of the Christian church that is regarded as an outward and visible sign of inward and spiritual divine grace, in particular those two things. And so the Catholic Church and some others have many sacraments, but the churches we associate with have two sacraments, and that's baptism and communion. And so we honor those two sacraments. It's an important part of our church, those two sacraments. And that's why today we're going to be talking about communion a bit and why we do it and what it's all about and how it came to be about and what the meanings are in communion. And there's three areas that we're going to kind of hit in what communion is to us as a church. And that is, those are one, unity in Christ, two, church unity, and three, united together. So Christians throughout history trace their practice of the Lord's Supper back to, you know, one story, when that took place on the eve of Jesus's execution. Now that evening, Jesus gathered his disciples to share the Passover meal. Passover commemorated Israel's liberation from Egypt, and the primary aim of the meal was to transmit the Exodus story to future generations. So no doubt the disciples around the table had the Israelites' freedom from slavery in mind, but they didn't grasp that Jesus was about to undergo a whole new Exodus, one that would liberate all humanity from sin and death and inaugurate his reign as Lord and Savior. Jesus told them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. You know, and that's in Luke. And so we're just going to touch on many different scriptures where we find reference to communion today. The institution of the Lord's Supper is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic just means the same. And that would be Matthew, Luke, and Mark. And they're not the exact same, but they share many of the same Jesus stories, but they're just told from a different perspective of the gospel writer, right? So Matthew has one perspective, and he's writing to the community that he's part of. Luke has another perspective because he's writing to a whole other community, and then Mark has the community he's writing to. So all of them talk about the same things, but just at a slightly different angle. But, you know, the central theme to all of it is the stories of Jesus, and the Last Supper is one of those. So Jesus gave the disciples bread, saying, this is my body. And then he gave them a cup, saying, this is the blood of my covenant. So just as Passover was intended to commemorate God's deliverance over and over again, so is the Lord's Supper. Thus, the earliest Christians ate the meal regularly to remember and celebrate their redemption in Christ. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has redeemed us and prepared us for eternity with him. But we really lose sight of this too easily in our day-to-day -day lives. And so that's why here at this church we do this meal on a weekly basis. Because what it does is it reminds us that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And that's the central theme of what communion is all about. And so as we see that many scriptures talk about the Last Supper, here's one in particular that is a good one too. He took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is the Apostle Luke reporting on Jesus' word at the last Passover Seder with his disciples before he was executed by the Romans. 
Another commonly used passage to describe communion, it comes from Paul in 1 Corinthians, and he was writing about 55 AD, you know, 22 years or so right after Jesus' death. And he writes, Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Does this sound familiar so far? I mean, it's pretty consistent here in the New Testament. And so in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So now, what exactly is the meaning of this communion? I mean, it's been central to the worshiping life of Christians back to the very beginning. And since we do it here every week at Regeneration, we should really look into why and what we are really doing, right? And so for us, communion really means sharing. It means about breaking bread together. Now, all Christians can agree on this, that Christ instituted the meal as a memorial of his sacrificial death and resurrection. The New Testament commands us to celebrate it until Jesus returns, and we should do this together in the unifying power of the Holy Spirit. And so that is why communion is part of our liturgy here. You know, in a lot of Christian churches, they take communion, you know, every three, four months. They take communion once a month, but it's not at the regular service. They'll do it on a weeknight before a service. And so it's sort of this thing that's not part of their service at all. But when the church that Albert went to Bible school with, you know, the Calvary Chapel, when they started up, they instituted communion at every meal, right? Because a lot of the churches in America had started falling away from traditional practices that Christians had been doing for centuries and centuries and centuries. So the weekly communion in regular Christian churches like ours, you might call us evangelical, Bible-believing, sermon-based Christian churches, it's a recent deal having communion every week. So, you know, a lot of churches, like a Lutheran church, or maybe other churches, they just do it once a month and it's a very formal sort of setup. Or you never actually see it in the service, right? So the church doesn't even get the chance to come together and celebrate this meal together. And so to me, that's one of the things I love about our church, and it's really drawn me to it, is that we get to come together as a family and celebrate communion together every week. And so while it's rooted in a singular event, communion, it goes by several names. Now, the simplest designation is the Lord's Supper, that's in Corinthians. It's also called the Lord's Table. It's called the Breaking of Bread. And by the second century, Christians started calling it the Eucharist. And so Eucharist is another one of these kind of scary words for a lot of us, especially if we were brought up in a Catholic church and, you know, we've kind of rejected certain things or an Episcopalian church or an Anglican church. But Eucharist, all it means is to give thanks. The Greek word is Eucharistia to give thanks. And so Jesus is talking about this when he says, take this cup and give thanks. That's the word Eucharistio. Now, there's not any real biblical basis for that word, but it became common usage starting in the 100s. And so a lot of times we just need to go with solid church tradition on that. We're not going to call it the Eucharist here. We're always probably going to call it communion. A lot of churches call it the Lord's Supper, and that's what Paul actually called it. But it's a meal of thanksgiving for what God has done for us in Christ and so the word Eucharist is a big, strong, powerful word, and it's loaded. And really, liturgy, sacrament, Eucharist, we shouldn't really be afraid of words like that because they've been with us for, you know, 2,000 years for the most part. And so the word we use here is communion, and we see that in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So this was in here, that participation. The word for that is communion. And in the Greek, it's koinonia. And in the Latin, it is communis, which means a participation together. It's a participation by all. And so the same root is used for words like common, community, communicate. And, you know, community is something that's a big word here at this church in a lot of churches because community is important to us. We want to build community, a strong community of believers, a place that is open to all to come into, an accepting community that doesn't judge. And so when we receive this meal, we actually participate in the presence of Christ through the witness and power of the Holy Spirit. And so important was this meal in the early church that Luke, in Acts 2.42, writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and, and the prayers. So now virtually all Christians affirm that the meal is to be taken in communion with others, that it's a core sign of our unity in Christ. And that's one of our themes today, the unity in Christ. And you can take communion in all sorts of different aspects. You can do it in your home group. You can do it as a special meal somewhere else. You can do it over in the gym that we have here, you know, on a Sunday morning with cross streets. You can do it all sorts of ways. But there's just something really special when we come together as a church to do communion together because it is a sacrament and it's a way we worship God together individually and collectively. And that puts us in, you know, unity in Christ together, which, you know, this is something we'll talk about a little bit more. But this is something that Jesus is driving at and what his social message is going on then at this time. Because it's kind of a radical message that he is going to be proposing here, which is, you know, is what's leading to his crucifixion. And so there's a book called the Didash, and it's a second century teaching manual. And it asserts that unity is a chief goal of the meal. So the Didash was a very important book, and it's still used by certain church communities. It was almost voted in as a book of the Bible, but it didn't meet canonical qualifications. But it's a highly respected book. And so when they were voting on different books to put in the Bible, this was one of the ones they considered. And it says, as this broken bread was scattered over the hills, and then when gathered, became one mass, so may your church be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. So from the earliest days of the church, Christians have affirmed that the meal represents our union both with Christ and each other. Now, when Paul's writing something, he's really getting at something. So we're going to shift over to that a bit. He's talking about a lack of unity in Christ in Corinthians, right? So the meal is supposed to bring everyone together as one body. And as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, when speaking of sharing bread as the body of Christ, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So right here, the one bread, one body, that's pointing to a unity here, right? Often we debate amongst churches the finer doctrinal points of the Lord's Supper, and too often the many strains of Christianity get all hung up on all sorts of technicalities. But what we often forget and even violate one of the most important aspects of the meal is church unity. So we have unity in Christ, and then we have church unity. One bread, one body, and yet there's always been an argument over whether to use leavened or unleavened bread in communion. And this was a principal basis for the split between the Church of Rome and the Church in the East in the 11th century. People have been fighting about this for a long time. And at my old church, at Dolores Park Church, we had a really unfortunate situation. There was a, one of our brothers there. He was a Messianic Jew. 
And he believed that we should only have unleavened bread. And it kind of caused a church split because he was told we were not going to honor that. And here we use matzah, right? And so that's unleavened. And really we avoid that whole kind of thing. But like, what's the point of losing 10 or 12 people from a church over an issue like that, right? These finer little doctrinal points to make people feel outcasted, that they're not doing things right. And so experiencing that was, a, it was kind of a mind-blowing situation, right? Because we're supposed to be a church in unity. And if within our own congregation we can't be a church in unity, how can we be a church of unity out in the world with other believers trying to make an impact on what's happening out there? One bread, one body. But if you go to a Catholic service with your friend, you will not be allowed to take communion together. You're not going to be able to take communion because you have not gone through the Catholic rituals. One bread, one body, and yet Protestant reformers like Luther and Zwingli literally argued and split over whether the bread and wine was actual flesh and blood of Christ or merely symbolized his body and blood. And that's an argument that's existing today. But these two hated each other. And so where's the unity here, right? There's been this reformation to bring the church back in line with early church practices. And then leading reformers of that movement are bitterly divided and fighting with each other. And what kind of testimony is that to Christ and Christ's church? So church in unity, in this case, church in disunity. So the fullest biblical account we have of communion as it was practiced in the early Christian church comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And at that time, it was part of a full-scale meal, and it apparently was in the home of a Christian community in Corinth. And so Paul's criticizing these Corinthian Christians because they have come to observe communion as a highly individualized, privatized manner. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. Paul also seems to be concerned that there were significant distinctions being made between rich and poor. You show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. Apparently at this time, wealthy people, when they would come and do this ritual meal, this meal, they would come first. And then the poor would come afterwards who had nothing and they were left with the leftovers. And so this is mimicking what is going on in Roman culture at the time, right? So the message here is that this is violating Jesus' radical social vision of equality that he constantly and continually promotes. And so what does this vision of equality look like? So in the Roman world, right, you have citizens. And Paul is fortunate to be a member of the Roman citizenship. However, when Paul becomes a Christian and starts following Jesus, he loses all of his social status because he is joining a group of people where everybody is equal. Jesus sees all as equal, rich, poor, the educated, the uneducated, the slave, the slave owner, the child, the widow. Everybody is equal within God's kingdom and how Jesus is envisioning it. And so Paul takes this massive step down and everybody else kind of takes a step up and we're all equal in this, right? And so Paul is railing against people sticking with what the cultural norm is of their entitlement and privilege and imposing that who are less fortunate in terms of like material wealth or their situation in life. And this is a theme Jesus is constantly referring to in the Bible, right? He is pretty much a radical when it comes to this. Quality in Christ is his message. And in the 2013 books of Verse of Meals, 
The biblical scholar Alan Street argues that in the first century, the Lord's Supper promoted an offstage political act of nonviolent resistance, one that challenged Rome's great tradition and offered a Christian social vision in its place. Celebrating the meal was a way for believers to resist human lords and to express their loyalty to Christ alone. So this is what Paul's talking about, right? He's talking about a division and a lack of unity. But what we're supposed to be doing is celebrating the meal as a way for believers to resist what's going on to them out there. And they come together and everybody's loyal to Christ alone. They don't have other lords that they're loyal to. Now the meal for me gives us a new identity that's wrapped up with God's divine rescue project for like our cosmos, you know, it's like it's a mess. From the very beginning, we screwed it all up. And so, you know, God has this plan and Jesus is at the center of it. And so, but at the Lord's table, we come together as equals, as persons who are given the gift of God's spirit and that's unconditionally, and that's impartially he gives that. He doesn't give it to the rich more than he gives it to the poor. He doesn't give it to the poor more than he gives it to the rich. He's totally impartial about how he gives that out. And too many times, many of us are like, huh, what's that person doing in their life that makes them be in the situation they're in? And, you know, we try to elevate ourselves at the expense of somebody else. But what we're doing here, when we're coming together, we are all equal. And when we celebrate this meal together, we're honoring that we're all equal in Christ and none of us is more special than the other. It doesn't matter if somebody is homeless, coming out of addiction, whatever the problems are, they are equal to everybody else in God's kingdom. And so that's something we really need to remember when we spend time during the communion portion of our service. So Paul's calling each member of the community here at Corinth to self-examination before partaking of the Lord's Supper. Then when they come together to eat as a church, he asks them to wait for one another and then to break bread together in explicit remembrance of Jesus as he instructed at his own Last Supper. So the larger Christian church then subsequently formalized communion to be like this, right? They didn't have the meals like they did before where chaos is going on because People are coming in because they're not allowed in and they can't share in the meal or at the best it's like the crummy leftovers because they're not being treated equally. And sometimes like in my house, leftovers are great because it's like I don't have to make food or go get food. In this instance, they're just being given like the crummy leftovers that they didn't want anymore. You know, it's not like they had refrigeration and could pack it up and store it because if it was any good, they would have done that and, you know, still not shared. And so the message here is that the church has to formalize communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. And then what we did was we made a small ritual meal part of our worship services. But what remains absolutely central to the ritual is this concept of community. The idea of overcoming distinctions and barriers, the coming together as one body to share in one bread. Jesus came with a clear understanding of human solidarity which he symbolized again and again in the face of fierce criticism by breaking bread with tax collectors and sinners and outcasts and by breaking bread with the multitudes. Now, breaking bread with the multitudes, does this sound familiar? Gospel of John, describing how he fed the 5,000 people by the Sea of Galilee. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Now, Jesus didn't ask any of those people if they were his followers or were merely curious about him or were, in fact, doubtful about him. He didn't distinguish between rich and poor, male and female, Jew and Gentile. 
I mean, communion is just a matter of ingathering of us in unity. It should also, though, nourish for us an outpouring of love in the world. Jesus always did both, right? He gathered people to break bread together, and then he sent them out to feed and clothe and comfort others. In Matthew 25, 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Amen? So Henry Nouwen, the great priest and writer and thinker and helper of people who had lots of problems, he was a great pastor, wrote in a Eucharistic prayer, Dear Lord, isn't my faith in your presence and the breaking of the bread meant to reach out beyond the small circle of my brothers to the larger circle of humanity and to alleviate suffering as much as possible? If I can recognize you in the sacrament of the Eucharist, or for us, you know, the ritual of communion, I must also be able to recognize you in the many hungry men, women and children in the world. If I cannot translate my faith in your presence under the appearance of bread and wine into action for the world, I am still an unbeliever. I pray, therefore, Lord, deepen my faith in your Eucharistic presence and help me find ways to let this faith bear fruit in the lives of many. And that is pretty awesome. And too often, things are a ritual for us, right? We come here, and it's just kind of we do these things. But in this case, we're called to self-examination also and what it is our faith is calling us to do. And this is what our faith is calling us to do. In Matthew 25, 35 there, that is what our faith is calling us to do. And that is what this is about when we come together to remember why Jesus came to us in the first place was to enable us to go out and do this for the world. But I want to switch gears just a little bit here for a few minutes and look at the meal in a little different light. So, you know, like in recent years, all sorts of sociologists and educators, you know, all across the political spectrum have encouraged families to do one simple thing together, and that's to eat. And the issue, of course, isn't just eating, right? I mean... All of us who are biological creatures know we need to eat. It's kind of a non-negotiable. But the issue instead is to eat together. Now, the family dinner for a lot of people might seem cute and outdated in a mobile and crazy but busy you know, current age, but there's something of importance here. Parents often wolf down in a car seat a bag meal they've ordered through a clown's mouth in order to get to soccer practice. And I'm not even condemning or criticizing anything because life is crazy and we've got lots of things to juggle. And I mean, that's me. I don't even have kids to take to soccer practice, you know? So it's just me trying to get here on time on a Sunday is a problem. It's interesting because I have my own liturgy on Sunday that starts before church, which is there's a Pete's coffee across from me. And so I go in there at about 7, 7, 10 and get a coffee. In. And they know that coffee is, I'm getting that because I'm going to go to church. And so I sit outside and drink that for a little bit. But what they also notice is the reason they can remember that is because it's the only day of the week I can make it in there before noon. It's just I can't get my act together to get out in the world before a certain time. So no, for me, Sunday's this special day. And so this is part of my liturgy, getting that cup of coffee. 
And for you coffee snobs, I don't want to hear about Pete's coffee. So, yeah. Right, and so children often eat from a desk alone in their rooms. They're texting friends while they're eating. They're playing video games. But, you know, the family dinner it does really create a connection. And as Christians, we ought to know this, right, from the church, because communion is a family dinner. And too often in churches, we speak of creating community in our churches. You know, we're talking about some new program, a new set of small groups. We've copied from some other church that are doing such things well. But, you know, the Bible doesn't really say anything about small groups. Now, we happen to have an awesome, like, home group ministry here, and I highly encourage people to get involved in that because that's where a lot of your spiritual growth is going to take place and the building of community outside of church is going to take place and friendships is going to develop and there's going to be fellowship, and that's all important, right? But what's really important is that we come here on Sunday together as small groups, as home groups, to be in one large group. I mean, the home groups are like the, really about the essential ministry to our church in a lot of ways. They're so awesome, and you know, they've helped so many people. But we share this weekly meal here, and then we come here, like it says in Acts 2.42, to like study the Lord's teachings. And really, you want to come here, right? This is a special place church. It's been built. It's beautiful. I mean, Julia Morgan had a great design, and you can feel like you're maybe a little closer to God, maybe not, whatever it is, but you can have communion anywhere, you know, and you can have your wine in a plastic cup, and too often, that's how I drink my red wine, is in a plastic cup or something, like I don't even make it to the glass, but when we come here, right, communion is special. It's not in a plastic cup. We're here, we're honoring God together as one larger family who loves God and loves each other and is in unity together. And this is something we can share together. And so that's what this is all about. And a lot of times at churches, like I was talking about before, they don't have the communion very often or do things like that. But, you know, they'll have like we have what we call halftime, which is great. People can get together, talk, fellowship together in between the services. And we highly recommend that people do that. People go out after church and they go to awesome restaurants and, you know, like they eat all sorts of types of food or they go to food trucks and all of that. And that's great because the Bible does call us to hospitality. And that is really important. But the meal we're focusing on here is the one here, right? It's the Lord's Supper. It's communion. And so it's a community that can't be dissolved by petty conflict or disagreement. If it's in unity with Christ, if it's in unity with each other, if it's in unity with the church, like the church I was at, that caused petty conflict and it caused division and disagreement and it was just ugly. But we are here to gather around the table of Christ to recognize that we are the table of the kingdom and we are called there to recognize the presence of our king. Not so much in the elements themselves or an in individual spiritual reflection, but in the body he has called together a body of sinners like us. Only then will we really get what the scriptures mean when they call us to fellowship. If we kind of recovered the communitarian aspect of what in our churches, what this meal is supposed to be about, I think we'd have a lot better healthy churches. Churches could be in communion with each other. We could pray for each other. We could work together. Because one of the unfortunate things is we've just dissolved in all sorts of strains of Christianity and we have thoughts about what that church might be like or that one and we don't even know and they're preconceived and you know God wants us to let go of our petty disagreements and arguments and he wants us to be in unity together because this table is for all of us who call ourselves believers it doesn't matter what church we come from or what our background is we share in that together so we have a common gospel all of us and we have a common table, and that's what we share in. 
I'd like to close us with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so the reason I'm using Nowen and Bonhoeffer, I could use N.T. Wright, you know, we could use C.S. Lewis, is because these are great people of faith, but from different church traditions, but we respect them, right? And they would share with us at the communion table. They're not different in terms of we can't share with them because they're Anglican or they're Lutheran or they're Catholic. But what Bonhoeffer has to say is, no one should be surprised at the difficulty of faith if there is some part of his life where he is consciously resisting or disobeying the commandment of Jesus. Is there some part of your life which you are refusing to surrender at his behest, some sinful passion, maybe, or some animosity, some hope, perhaps your ambition or your reason, how you can hope to enter into communion with him when at some point in your life you are running from him? So as we move into our communion part of the service, actually, where we're going to take a meal together, there is the part that is about self-examination. And Paul calls us to do that in Corinthians. And faith can be difficult, right? And is there some part of our life which we're refusing to surrender? Is there some sinful nature we have that we just can't let go of? Some animosity we're holding toward people? Some forgiveness we cannot give people? some forgiveness we cannot ask for from people that we've hurt? Is there some sort of hope we have that is not in alignment with God? And as he also says, is our ambition blocking us from doing that? And as we take this communion, let's try to remember that if we're running away from him, why are we running away? And what that looks like and how we can stop running from God but run to God. So this is a time where we want to think about that a little bit. But it's not just a time of self-examination. It's one of the primary. It's also a time of celebration, right? Because we're doing this in remembrance. We're proclaiming Jesus as king. Christ is dead. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We need to remember that. But we need to remember it that we're doing this together and that this isn't just about our own personal spiritual growth, but it's about our brothers and sisters' spiritual growth. It's about our church's spiritual growth as a community together and what that looks like. So as Jane's going to be playing some music for us here, and we're going to sing songs of worship and praise, just take a little time to reflect on all of that. And so I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to move into that portion of the service. Father God, we thank you for sending your son to us to just rescue us, Lord, from the mess we've made of this world that it was in your plan all along to do that, but Lord, that you have this amazing grace for us. But Lord, it's not a cheap grace, it's a grace that calls us to be also an action by faith. Our faith cannot just be individual, Lord, but it must have an outward expression also to go with the inward expression. And Lord, so as we enter into this time, just be with us. Let us see where we are not in alignment, Lord, with how you want us to be living our faith, how we've separated ourselves. Give us the spirit to just miraculously see where our sin is and to repent that sin in order to be able to take this communion together and for you and with you. And so we pray this in your name. Amen.